0: appreciate uh, the presence of everyone this morning. We're glad you're here. And uh, our hope is that our time together has been beneficial, uplifting, encouraging, inspiring. As we've sung together and prayed together, we've remembered the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross on our behalf in the Lord's Supper today. And again, our our hope is, our prayer is, first of all, that God is pleased with what we've done, but uh, that it's helpful to us as well. Now we've got some of our number out. I know Sally has tested positive for COVID. Kevin's tested positive for COVID. We've got some back, I see Gary's back with us today. He's been out for a couple of weeks I think and uh, glad that he's back and maybe others. Regina's with us today, that's great. She's feeling well enough to be here, wonderful. It's always good uh, to see people back uh, when uh, they've not been with us for a while. Let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy today. Deuteronomy is one of probably the more neglected books in the Old Testament. It's very important in the overall scheme of the Old Testament, the kind of the overall play uh, plan of the New Testament. It's the fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of Law, the fifth book of Moses. It describes events that took place just prior to the children of Israel going over into the Promised Land. And so Israel has come up out of Egypt. They've wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Now they're ready to go into the Promised Land. So this is that second generation of Israelites that have come up out of Egypt. The name Deuteronomy is, comes to us uh, from, from Latin, meaning uh, the second law. And it sort of uh, indicates a, a second giving of the law, a repetition of the law. But really the book of Deuteronomy is, is much more than the way I describe it, again, I don't know that it's, it's the best way to describe it, is it lays the track that especially the historical books of the Old Testament run along. And so, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, reference is made to the king that Israel would, would, would call out for, would desire, uh, a king so that they might be like the nations. And we know that's exactly what happened later on. And there's a warning to this king in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that he should not multiply horses for himself and not multiply gold and silver, and not, not multiply wives, let's say, turn him away from serving God. And so, and so you see, that's, that's the track, isn't it? And then we come to Solomon. Solomon, what we read about Solomon in the Old Testament, rides right along that track. And so... There are other ways in which Deuteronomy lays the track. Chapter the, uh the curses, God's curses that will come upon Israel if they don't obey. You'll be defeated by your enemies. You'll, you'll go into captivity and so forth. And, and so that's the track. And eventually, that's exactly what happens. And so we say it's an important book in the Old Testament. It sort of previews what's going to happen and how things are going to play out as... The history of israel unfolds it's organized around several speeches given by moses to the israelites to prepare them for life in the promised land but it also reflects the structure and form of ancient covenants between nations and so uh, archaeologists have uncovered some of these covenants the documents that relate to some of these covenants and they follow a certain form and you can see that form in the book of deuteronomy as well and so we might see deuteronomy as a statement of the covenant between god and his people in this covenant god reviews the history what he's done this is what i've done for you i brought you up out of egypt i've led you through the wilderness i provided for you i've defeated your enemies then he talks about the stipulations of the covenant. And so this is what I'm requiring of you. This is what you're obligated to do. And so I am your God. You are my special people. We are in covenant together. This is what I've done. Now this is, these are your obligations. And so summarized in chapter 5 in the Ten Commandments, but other stipulations to the covenant are given following, in the following passages. And then we have a statement of God's blessing. This is what I'll do for you if you obey me, especially chapter 28, but also scattered throughout the book. And God's warning. This is, these are the, the, the plagues or the punishment that will come upon you if, uh, if you disobey. And so that's sort of a, an overview of the book of Deuteronomy. To say that there is a great deal of detail in Deuteronomy would be an understatement, wouldn't it? Uh, There's a lot of detail about the law and the stipulations and the requirements of of Israel and their relationship with God. So to say there's a great deal of detail, that's an understatement. But there is one passage that sort of sums it all up, and that's what we're going to look at today. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. So turn over there, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 reads like this. You can see it on the screen. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I'm commending you today for your good. What does the Lord require of you? What does He ask of you? What I am your God, you are my people, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm obligating myself, I'm committing myself to your well-being. Now, well, what does God ask of us? And, and this passage summarizes it. We're going to look at the four or five details here in this particular passage because they're true of God's request of us as well. Notice as we begin this study that God emphasizes His special relationship with Israel. The name Israel, of course, comes from the patriarch Jacob. You remember the the fathers of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and that becomes the name of the nation. The twelve sons of Israel are the twelve fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so they have the twelve sons of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel. And so that becomes the name of the nation. The Lord, you can see Lord printed in all capital letters there, is the name Jehovah or Yahweh, the the covenant name of God. This is the name that God gave to Moses when Moses asked, When I go down into Israel, go down into Egypt and tell Pharaoh, Let my people go, and the Israelites ask me, Who sent you? What, What should I tell them? And he said, You tell them, The I am has sent you, and proceeds then to to refer to himself by this name, Yahweh, derived, it's thought at least, from that verb to be, I am. And so the Lord, this is the covenant name of God. And then he says, now Israel, what does the Lord, your God, require from you? It's not just any God out there. It's your God. And so the special covenant relationship between God and his people is being highlighted today. We are the Israel of God today, the church. We are in covenant relationship with God. He is our God, especially our God. We are especially His people. He's committed Himself to working on our behalf, to providing for us, to protecting us, spiritually speaking, especially. Now what does He require from us? Or what does He ask from us? And this passage informs us, just like it informed Israel of old. What does the Lord require of us? To fear the Lord your God. To fear the Lord. We just spent a whole year talking about living in the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord, very common idea in the Bible. You might remember from the book of Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14, to fear God and keep His commandments. That's the whole duty of man. Then in the New Testament, Acts chapter 10 and verse 35, just selecting a few passages from the Old and New Testaments that reflect this theme, fearing the Lord. Acts 10, Peter says to Cornelius that God is not a respecter of persons, but men in every nation, who fear him and who do what's right are acceptable to him. People, whether Jew or Gentile, who fear him and do right, do righteousness, are acceptable to him. And then 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And so this idea of fearing God really is found all through the Bible, all through both Old Testament and New Testament. To fear God means to revere Him, to be in awe of Him. We might say it means to respect Him. That might seem a little light, though. I'm not sure that uh, is a strong enough word, but to be in awe of Him, to, to, to revere Him, to respect Him. It is the word that reflects, at times, terror or, or fright. And certainly, if we do wrong, we have every reason to fear God in that way. Things are not going to work out too well for us if we're not in obedience to God. There's every reason to fear Him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. So we, we need to be in fear of God in that way. But, that, but it's not limited to that, of course. I find it interesting that the 130th Psalm in verse 4 says, "...there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared." We don't usually associate forgiveness with fear, and so fear encompasses more than just that terror or or that fright. Just think about a group of boys standing around, maybe school-age boys. They're, they're talking about their dad, and one of them says, "You know, my dad's hardly ever at home. He travels all the time. I don't get to see him very much." And and, and another one says, "Well, you know, my dad is at home, but I, uh, yeah, he goes off into his room, and again, we just don't have very much of a relationship." And and uh, you know, I just just again just don't have much of a relationship with him. Another one says, "You know, I love my dad. We do things together. He spends time with me. He invites me to ask him whatever whatever I will, whatever's bothering me. I can go to him and I can I can talk things over with him and he provides for me. He's good to me. He praises me. Now, now he's dad, I understand that. He's the dad and I'm the child. And so I'll respect that and I'm if I do something wrong, he's going to deal with that. But but you know, I've got a loving father. We have a great relationship. Another one says, you know, I'm terrified of my dad. I'm terrified of him. I try to be a good, a good son. I try to keep my room clean. I try to help out around the house. I'm quiet. I'm so afraid of him. I just think he's going to hammer down on me any minute. Which one of those is more descriptive of our relationship with God? <laughs> it's the third one, isn't it? I know He's the Father. I understand that. And if I do wrong, I know He's going to deal with it. I'm going to avoid trying to do wrong. But He invites me to come to Him, to approach Him. We have a wonderful relationship. He's good to me, He provides for me, and I want to do what's pleasing to Him. That's the fear of the Lord, isn't it? In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Paul says, We have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again but a spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And so we're not like a slave who's terrified of the master, that the master's going to come down with a whip on his back just at any moment. We, can, we have a father, a loving father. He's the father, we understand that. But we're able to cry out to him as children, do a loving father. To fear God, then, is to have the absolute highest esteem for Him, to be in awe of Him because of who He is. Look at this same passage, Deuteronomy chapter 10, and go down a little bit to verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. It's a great description of who God is. Why should we fear God? He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He's the great, the mighty, the awesome God. And so we stand in awe of Him. We uh, we fear Him. Have the utmost respect for Him. Chapter 5 of the book of Deuteronomy maybe speaks to the point as well. Chapter 5 and verse 29 says, The Lord, uh, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. And multiple other passages ideas, as well. Fearing, fearing God. The fear of God for His people far surpasses the esteem we have for anyone or anything else. We fear God above all other things. As much as we may respect our father and fear him, we respect and fear God more. As much as we may respect and fear our employer, we respect and fear God more. <laughs> as much as we respect and fear the president or the king or the governor, it far surpasses the esteem that we have for anyone or anything else. And it's this fear of God that produces obedience and worship. Verse 21 of Hebrews chapter 10. Let's start at verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God, serve Him, cling to Him, swear by His name. He is your praise. He is your God who's done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. He is your praise. He is your God. He's done these things for you, so praise Him. And as we'll see, obey Him. What does does our God ask from us? fear Him. He also asks us to love Him. We are to love Him. So these first two elements here have to do with our attitude, our thinking. And so we are to love Him. As we know, Bible love is more than sentimental feelings or emotions for someone. It involves a deliberate choice to be committed to someone. And so that's Bible love. It's more than just sentiment or emotion. It's a deliberate to commit ourselves. To someone. This passage, Deuteronomy chapter 10, highlights the love of God. Look at verse 15. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even above all the peoples as it is this day. Look at the combination of love and choice. He set his affection on the fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants. And so Bible love involves a choice and a commitment to. And so God chose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and committed Himself to them to develop them into a great nation and so forth, ultimately to bring the Christ through them. There's another passage in Deuteronomy that speaks to the love of God. Chapter 7 especially highlights the love of God. Look at verse 6. You're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Again, look at the relationship between loving and choosing. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples. You were the fewest of all peoples. But because God, or the Lord, loved you and, and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers. commitment, love, choice, commitment. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and from the house of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and so forth. And so God, has, God loves them. He's chosen them. He's committed Himself to them. And He's worked to their benefit. Brings them up out of Egypt. They pass through the Red Sea. He feeds them in the wilderness. He provides water in the wilderness. He defeats their enemies. He's bringing them into a land. Of milk and honey. And so the Lord loves his people. I came across an interesting expression <laughs> in the course of preparing uh, for this sermon. The expression was covenant reciprocation. It's kind of a fancy word covenant reciprocation. What, what, what is that? Well, maybe you're familiar with a reciprocating saw. You know what a reciprocating saw is? Sometimes things call it a sawzall. Well a reciprocating saw it has, a, has a case, it's, it's a power saw, it runs by electricity, has a handle on it, you hold it like this, and it has a blade that comes out the end, and the blade when you pull the trigger, you know, it's going back and forth and back and forth, and you, know, saws, you can saw just about all things, it's a all. But it's that back and forth movement, that's why it's called a reciprocating saw. It goes out, it comes back. It goes forth, it comes back. So with that in mind, what would covenant reciprocation be? The love of God goes out to His people. The love of the people comes back to God. The commitment of God goes out to His people. The people commit to God. The faithfulness of God and loyalty of God goes out to His people. The loyalty of the people come back to God. That's that's a pretty good word, isn't it? Covenant reciprocation. We are in a covenant relationship with God. We reciprocate His actions, His attitudes toward us. Kind of like I thought about uh, NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, you know, United States is in that with uh, European countries. And so we have a reciprocal relationship. We help each other. We help them, they help us. We help defend them, they'll help defend us. We help supply them, they'll help supply us. And so we have this reciprocal relationship. Because we are, are in a covenant with these nations. There's a treaty between us. Well, we're in a covenant relationship with God. If He loves us, if He's committed to us, we ought to love Him in return and be committed to Him in return. Look at Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep His charge, His statutes, His ordinances, His commandments. Know this day that I'm not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of the Lord your God, His greatness, His mighty hand, His outstretched arm, His signs, His works, which He did in the midst of Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all His land, what He did to Egypt's army and so forth. And then you you know these things. You know what I've done for you. Now you do for me. You know that I love you and I've acted on your behalf. Now you return that love for me. Same passage, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13. It shall come about, if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart, with all your soul, that He will give you rain for your land and its season and so forth. If you love me, well then I'll bless you. There's that reciprocal relationship. And so I've loved you, I've blessed you, you love me, I'll bless you. And so that, that back and forth. Same passage, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22. If you're careful to keep all of this commandment, which I'm commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to hold fast to Him, the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you. The same is true for those in the New Covenant. If God loves us, We ought to love Him in return. So I guess the question is, has God loved us? Ask that rhetorically, of course. (laughs) Because the answer is obvious, isn't it? He's given us His only begotten Son. Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And so the greatest commandment is to love God. God has loved us. We are to love Him. Loving God, of course, involves choosing Him, being committed to Him, being loyal to Him, serving Him, giving our all for Him. He's given His all for us. We give Him our all in return. What does the Lord ask of us? To fear Him, to love Him. Those two have to do with attitude. There There are three that have to do with our behavior or our actions. We are to walk in his ways. Now we might understand these three as as kind of all synonymous actions to walk in his ways and and to keep his commandments and to serve him. But I think there there is a slight distinction between them all. And so let's let's talk about walking in his ways. What does the Lord require of us to walk in his ways? Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? He is our God. We walk in his ways. Why why would He be our God and we walk in another God's ways? Now that wouldn't make sense, would it? And so we walk in His ways. It means to conduct ourselves as God conducts Himself. If we were to say of someone, well, that's just His way. We we might understand that. So let's say I'm talking to a person and I don't know him very well. He's a little bit gruff. (laughs) He's kind of direct. He's to the point. Uh, and uh, maybe a little bit caustic in the way he says things. And I get my feelings hurt a little bit. And I I go to then a third party, this third party. He knows the guy I've been talking to very well. He's known him for a long time. And I say, you know, he kind of hurt my feelings. He's a little bit gruff in the way he talked to me. And he said, look, don't worry about that. It's okay. That's just his way. That's just his way. Well here's a person who understands because he's very familiar with that, with that guy, he understands him. Now don't get upset, it doesn't mean anything by it, that's just his way. And he, he can say that because there's been a long period of observation. He knows the guy, he knows him well, he's known him for a long time, he understands his ways. And so he's able to evaluate things correctly. And so if we were to say that's just His way, we would be referring to His habit or His common practice or His ordinary way of doing something. That would come as a result of a long period of observation. So, so it is with God. We know His usual way of dealing with the matter because we've observed it for a long period of time in His Word. And so we know His ways. We know how God deals with certain situations because He's told us about it over and over and over again in His Word. And so we come to know Him after a long period of observation. We know Him. We understand Him. And so we're able to walk in His ways. Now what are His ways? That's, I guess, the next logical question. Well one example is here in Deuteronomy chapter 10. We don't have to go very far to find that. Look at uh, verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So, so show your love for the alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. We're just walking in his ways. We, we know His way. We know how He deals with a certain situation. And so we're able to reproduce that in our lives. And so we need to learn the ways of God. We need to learn how He thinks and what He says and how He reacts in certain situations. God is kind, and so we are to be kind. God is merciful, so we are to be merciful. God is generous, so we are to be generous. God is patient, so we are to be patient. God is forgiving, so we're to be forgiving. And yet, in spite of, not in spite, but in addition to that, God does not approve of evil. So we must not approve of evil. He's good, He's kind, He's merciful, He's compassionate, He's forgiving, He's generous, but He doesn't approve of evil. We need to walk in His ways, understand His ways, and walk in His ways. And we can't walk in the ways of God if we don't know the ways of God. (laughs) You know, so I'm talking to this guy and I don't know him very well. I get a little upset, maybe a little offended by the way he talks to me. I don't know him very well and so I don't understand his way. And so we've got to become familiar with God's ways. And so we've got to learn and to study and to think about, meditate on what God has revealed about himself and his ways in his word. That's how we come to know His ways and how we can accurately walk in them. He says, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart. Well, a servant is one that serves, of course. A servant works on behalf of and at the behest of the master. He does the master's will. He promotes the master's interests. Let's say, here's a man, he's a vineyard owner, and he has a servant who serves him. He goes and works in the master's vineyard and he does work in the master's vineyard according to the master's will. And you might think, you know, I think a better way to deal with these vines would be to do this. But he doesn't do that. He does the master's will. If the master said, I want you to treat the vines like this, well, a good and faithful servant treats the vines like that. He's serving the master. He's doing the master's will, promoting the master's interests. And so he tills the soil, he plants the vines, he cares for the vines, he harvests them, he stores them. Whatever the master bids him do, that's what he does. He's serving the Lord, and he's serving with all his heart and soul. Now the world might consider being a servant sort of a, an undesirable position. Nobody aspires to be a servant, I don't suppose. It's sort of a, an undesirable position. But in the Bible, being a servant of the Lord, oh, that's a prestigious position. There are men who are outstanding in their faith and outstanding in their service who are described in that way. Abraham is called the servant of the Lord, Genesis 26, verse 24. Moses is called the servant of the Lord on multiple occasions, in fact, Joshua, David, are described in that way as well. Great men in God's kingdom. They did God's work in the world and so they were praised as servants of the Lord. We are God's servants today. We carry out His work in the world. We promote His interest. We work in His cause. and So we're promoting the cause of Christ. We teach the gospel to the lost and to the saved for that matter. That's the Lord's work. That's the Master's work. That's what He has bid us do. And so we do it. We do His work. We teach the Gospel of Christ. We raise our families in the Lord. That's serving the Lord, is it not? You have children, you're raising those children. To fear the Lord, to love Him, raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that's, that's being a servant of the Lord. That's how we serve, that's how we promote His cause and His interest in the world. We provide an example of faith and faithfulness to others, an example of faith and faithfulness to others, so that when people think about us or talk about us, they talk about us as people of faith and faithfulness. We attend and participate in worship. We may lead in worship or we may participate from our seat, but we're here and we're serving the Lord in our worship. We encourage, we help each other, we shine the light of Christ. We're serving the Lord, promoting His cause, promoting His interest, and not not our own. What does the Lord ask of us? Serve me. Serve me with all your heart and with all your soul. Do my work, promote my interest in the world, represent me faithfully and accurately. Some servants would serve their master begrudgingly. (laughs) Uh, You know, they're grumbling all the time. They're complaining. They do only the minimum, you know. I'm not going to do one ounce more than what I'm required to do. That's hardly serving with all your heart and soul, is it? For serving with all our heart and soul, we serve with joy. (laughs) We're glad to do it. We want to do all that we can within the master's will to benefit him. In the book of Romans chapter 12 and verses 10 and 10 through 12, have a New Testament passage that encourages us to serve the Lord. Romans 12 verse 10, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And then the last thing he says is, We are to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes. And so, fear God, love Him, walk in His ways, serve Him, keep His commandments. Israel was to keep the law of Moses. The Ten Commandments are, are, uh, are given there in Deuteronomy chapter 5, as well as Exodus chapter 20. Other laws included in the Old Covenant. And so when He says, keep the Lord's commandments, keep all, the, all these laws in, in the, the law of Moses... But we in the New Testament have been com- given commandments to keep as well. They're not hard to find. <laughs> They're all over in the New Testament. And so as children of God's covenant, we are to keep His commandments. We to call those the stipulations of the covenant. Our obligations, our responsibility as covenant people. Some of the New Testament commands are prohibitions. Don't do this. We don't really like those, maybe, but they're our commands anyway. Don't do this. Don't do these things. Others are more positive. Do this. Again, these are there are many of these kinds of passages in the New Testament. I think about Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. Don't do those things. But on the other hand, verse 12... Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Here are some of the commands. Keep the commands. Don't do these things. On the other hand, do these things. We're to keep all of those. Our passage contains an interesting observation. God gives His commands for our good. Now, sometimes we look at law or command uh, as sort of a restrictive and prohibitive, uh, you know, I'm not able to do what I really want to do because this law is, is preventing me from doing that. But, but the law God gives us is for our good. Now think about the civil law. Think about driving on an interstate in which there was no law. Oh, we probably wouldn't get on the interstate. It would be so dangerous. The law is there for our good. And if we observe the law, well, then we can use the interstate freely without, without fear. A culture in which lying was not discouraged would be difficult to live in. Just imagine if everybody lied all the time and that was okay. People didn't have a problem with it. And that'd be, that'd be difficult to live in, wouldn't it? A culture in which stealing was allowed, where drunkenness was not restrained. Those, those situations were just very dangerous, undesirable place to live. And so there are good reasons why lying is prohibited, where drunkenness is prohibited. Those things, those prohibitions are for our good. And so there are good reasons why God has greatly restricted divorce. Good reasons for that. We may look at that and think, well, well that, that, that wouldn't hurt anybody. Well, God knows you multiply this particular case on a widespread scale, that's going to have some detrimental effects in the world. And so that, that prohibition is for our good. There's a reason why he says and, and prohibits homosexual behavior. Again, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. It's just two people consenting adults. Well, God understands that on a widespread level. That's, that's, that's harmful to a culture and a society. So the prohibition against that really is for our good. Adultery, a similar point could be made. On the other hand, there are reasons why He commands us to be kind and thoughtful and generous and patient, loving, self-controlled. Those are for our good as well and for the good of the community. And we may not understand all this. We we may look at a certain prohibition and say, I don't understand why God's prohibited that. That's where we trust in God. I don't understand that. It looks to me like it would be okay to do something else, but I just trust in God that God knows best, And his prohibitions and what he has required of us is for our good. And so I'm going to stick with that. That's what I'm going to do. So these things are for our good. And really, the sooner we understand that, the better off we're going to be. All right, time's out. We're covenant people of God, like Israel was. We're, We're the covenant people of God today. What does he require of us? To fear him to love Him, to walk in His ways, to serve Him, to keep His commandments. There's about five five things, I think, five things that summarize our obligation to Him. So let's do a little self-evaluation at this point. Consider what He's done for us. What does He ask me to do for Him? And then make sure these things can, can be found in my life. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity that we can come before you today and that we can worship you and praise you for your greatness. You are indeed the God of gods. You're the Lord of lords, the almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We praise you for those things. We're thankful, Father, for your kindness shown toward us, your generosity, your patience, your love, your goodness. We understand, Father, that you do not approve of evil, will not tolerate evil. And so you act toward us in a way that encourages us to eliminate those things from our lives. And so, Father, we pray that we might see those things and and do that to rid ourselves of those things that are not pleasing to you. Father, we so appreciate all the things that you have done for us. We want to reciprocate those things. And so, Father, we fear you, we love you, we commit ourselves to you, we choose you, and we work in your interest in this world. Help us, Father, to think about the things we've talked about today, fearing you, loving you, walking in your way, serving you, keeping your commandments. Help us, Father, to examine ourselves, make sure those things are in our lives, that we're building on them, that we're strengthening them, that we're multiplying them so that these things can be found more and more. Father, we pray that by doing these things, we will please you and that we'll have a home in heaven with you throughout eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're here today. You're not-